Recovery Elevator, Episode 8. But in the end, it, it's 100% on you. It's a decision that you need to make for yourself. You need to become accountable and look yourself in the eye and say, this is what I need to do. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul, and I'm excited to be here with you. At the time of this recording on April 8th, I have been sober for seven months and one day, according to my Recovery Elevator sobriety app available on the iPhone and Android platforms. Now, episodes seven and eight will kind of go together. So if you haven't heard episode seven and you've got the time, Go back and listen to episode seven. It's basically where I was drinking all the way until I met up with the kids that I was going to be a chaperone with on the trek to Machu Picchu. And Recovery Elevator, I just had one of the most amazing weeks of sobriety in my life. To start, I made it to Cusco, Peru, sober. That's right. I recorded episode seven in the airport in Lima, where last year I was getting shit-faced. But I made it to Cusco sober. I had arrived there one day before everybody else was going to get there. And the first thing I did was check into my hotel, drop off my belongings, get into a taxi cab, and head off to an AA meeting that I had looked for the schedule on the internet. Now, AA in Cusco is a little bit too anonymous. It took me four cabs and about three and a half hours before I first found an AA meeting. For the first three taxis, I would get dropped off, pay the sole, and then go knock on the door or inquire about the address that I was at for the AA meeting. And they would say, hmm, no esta aquí, or it's not here, or oh, they left three weeks ago, or oh, it hasn't been here for two years. But finally, I flagged down my fourth cab driver. I looked in, and I knew it was not an official cab, but he appeared to be about 18 to 22 years old. Juan Carlos, bless his heart, later I found out to be 28. And he stuck with me for about an hour and a half until he went to seven more addresses. We went to the hospital and asked where there were AA meetings. I figured there are plenty of drunks in the hospital, but no, they didn't even know. We went to a psychiatric ward, and that is where we finally got an updated, accurate list of AA meetings. And even then, the first two did not have AA meetings at the location. And while Juan Carlos was driving me all around the city of Cusco, which is not a small city, it's about 800,000 inhabitants, trying to find these beyond anonymous meetings, he finally asked, he said, what are, what are you looking for an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting for? I said, well, Juan Carlos, thanks for asking. I'm an alcoholic. And after again, 45 minutes in the cab, I finally asked Juan Carlos, I was like, Juan Carlos, do you know any alcoholics? And he said, oh, no, of course not. I don't know any alcoholics. But ironically, as the conversation continued, he would talk about how his uncle couldn't stop drinking after he started and he would beat his wife. And he talked about other family members that have struggled with alcohol. Now, I didn't want to burst Juan Carlos's bubble and say, listen, Juan, your uncle and several of your family members are probably alcoholics because, again, it's not my place to do so. I just thought it was ironic that he did not know any alcoholics yet. There were probably several in his family. The reason why? Wow, there is a stigma of alcoholism in Peru. I cannot speak for all of Peru, but I can only speak for Cusco. In fact, the disease alcoholism, I don't even think is a term commonly used in Cusco. There's the word borracho, which just means drunk. And there are the town drunks, though there's a drunk, there's a borracho, but there's not a lot of alcoholics or acceptance of the fact that alcoholism is a disease. So Juan Carlos finally managed to get me to an AA meeting, and I walked in about an hour and a half late, and usually these meetings are an hour, but I knew it was still going to be going on. And sure enough, I dropped off my stuff, and I arrived into a meeting of about nine people, 
and I felt right at home. There was no introduction needed to be made. I was an alcoholic. It's a communal disease, and I felt right at home, even though I had never met any of these people before in my entire life. They speak a different language, and it was a fantastic experience. It was not my intention to go to the Alcoholics Anonymous meeting to find people to interview, but after the meeting, I met two gentlemen in their mid-20s who had remarkable stories, and we went to one of this gentleman's house, and we did an interview, but that is going to take a lot of back-end effort of translating and mixing the language and voices, so that is coming in later episodes, but they did, however, mention that there's a witch doctor that you can go to that cures alcoholism, and this, again, affirms that I am an alcoholic for a split second when he said that, my mind said to myself, wow, I need to go to this witch doctor and be cured because maybe I can try the Cuscania or the local Budweiser of here in Cusco. The next day, I met up with my best friend and 11 students from Colorado to begin some volunteer work in the poor Peruvian towns in the Andean mountains and then later do the trek to Machu Picchu, which is about 48 kilometers and it is not easy. But the first three days of the trip were simply amazing and it probably will change the course of my life forever. We started touring orphanages around the area organized by Peruvian Hearts. That's PeruvianHearts.com. It's a nonprofit out of Boulder, Colorado that puts girls in orphanages in the local Andean mountains there. Now, I asked Edwin, who is the Peruvian contact for Peruvian Hearts, who owns a hotel in the town called Urubamba, which is an incredibly run eco hotel. And if you're ever in the town of Urubamba, which is about a half hour away from Cusco, you have to stay there. I asked Edwin who again should have a bookshelf full of Nobel Prizes for what he has done for these girls. I said, Edwin, how many of these girls are in these orphanages because their parents possibly might be alcoholics or reasons of that sort? And he looked at me and said, ooh, more than 75%. And he thought about it again. And he said, no, it's probably 80 to 90%. So I told Edwin a little bit about myself and that I've been sober for seven months. And he said, ooh, Pablo, If you could, I would like for you to speak to the older girls a little bit about your story and the disease alcoholism. Well, I was terrified, but I said yes. I've actually never told my story in front of a group of people live. Sure, I've spoken to this microphone, but I'm in an enclosed room, and I've never really talked to people in public about this in English, let alone my first talk is going to be in Spanish. So I agreed, and I said, sure, how long? And he said, let's talk for 20 to 30 minutes. So I showed up, prepared to talk for about 20 to 30 minutes in Spanish, have you, to a group of about 18 to 20 girls who are not alcoholics. I feel very comfortable talking to other alcoholics about the disease of alcoholism, but none of these girls were alcoholics. In fact, to be in the Peruvian Promise program, they had signed a contract saying they would not drink or do drugs while in the program, which I think is a very good idea. So I began talking and the hands on the clock just continued to move. It was about two hours after I was done with all the questions and answers. It was absolutely incredible. I told them about this topic called alcoholism, that it's a disease that they had never heard of before. Many of the girls thought that their parents drank simply because they were weak or they didn't love them or they simply chose to drink instead of be a good father or a good mother. There was laughter. There were tears of joy. There were also tears of pain. And one of the questions this girl asked, I saw it in her face. She was excited. She was happy that she knew that her father did indeed love her. It wasn't an issue that her dad did not want to spend time with her and rather drink alcohol. It was the fact that her father was sick, that her father was an alcoholic. And she asked this question and I could see her eyes gleaming with hope. She said, well, Paul, how do I get my father to quit drinking then? 
And the question (laughs) blindsided me. I didn't see it coming, and I should have seen it coming. And her eyes were so filled with hope because I was going to give her an answer that was going to change her whole family's life. And her eyes saw my face and how my facial expression turned because my heart just sank. I didn't know the answer. And I could read it in her face that she was reading my expression. And the hope on her face disappeared. There are no Alcoholics Anonymous meetings in the Andean towns. I didn't have an answer. And to answer the question honestly was just that. I said, I don't have the answer, but we can talk later. And we did talk later. And the fact is, her father will probably die of alcoholism, of liver failure soon with the amount of alcohol that she said her father was drinking. It was absolutely heartbreaking. In fact, I didn't even want to go do the Machu Picchu trek. I wanted to go to the village and talk to her father. The reasons why people drink in Peru and Cusco and in Bolivia and all of South America really are the same reasons why people drink in all the world. They become addicted. But things are intensified a little bit with the amount of poverty down here in Latin America. There's an alcohol called Metileco, and it's a Bolivian company that makes this, and it's for medicinal purposes. But I guess for about 33 cents, you can buy a bottle of Metileco, add water, and you can get drunk for a week. And this substance, again, used for the medicinal industry, is absolutely obliterating some of the Andean villages in Bolivia and all over Peru. And most of these orphans, their parents were addicted to this alcohol called metalico, which is basically just a strong, cheap alcohol that keeps you drunk for days. After the talk, I spoke with a couple girls individually, and one of them told me they thought their dad just didn't like them. But in fact, they're an alcoholic, and they prefer to drink, and they're addicted to alcohol. Go to recoveryelevator.com. There will be a photo of me speaking to the girls as well as a link to the Peruvian Hearts program and the Peruvian Promise, which is the program to get these girls through college. I've also put some photos up there of me after I climbed Machu Picchu sober. And there was some video recorded, so if I want to translate this and put this up, I think I'll get it up there because it's really cool. After the talk, I emailed the founder of Peruvian Hearts and said, I want to help. How can I help? On the recoveryelevator.com website, there is a donate page, which 100% of the donations will be given to programs just like these all over America and all over the world to help not only people struggling with alcohol, but to help victims of alcoholics. And after I did climb Machu Picchu for the second time, and I want to talk to you about some cool things in sobriety. And that has a lot to do with the person I interviewed today whose name is Nate. Now, Nate, I've known for a while, and we take a trip to El Salvador, and we are both sober, and it is an amazing trip. But let me first tell you about the Machu Picchu trek while sober. Now, the year before, I showed up drunk. I was sobering up during the work at the orphanages. Therefore, it didn't have the same impact on me. When I got to the trek, I was out of shape. I was probably 20 pounds heavier. I could barely carry my own pack. This year, not the case. I dominated the Machu Picchu. I dominated the Inca Trail. I would reach camp about an hour early, and I would run back down the trail, get one to two bags from the other high school kids, and then climb back up. Now this is nearly at 14,000 feet, and the Inca Trail arriving to Machu Picchu should definitely be on everybody's bucket list, especially while sober. And now I'm excited for you guys to hear Nate's story. And Recovery Elevator, I'd like to welcome Nate to the show. Nate, how you doing? 
I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. And let's just get right into it, Nate. How long have you been sober? You know, I have been sober for uh, almost five years. At the end of April, it'll be five years. Five years. Congratulations. And Recovery Elevator, a lot of the guests on the show I have never met in person or only get to know them in a brief conversation before I hit the record button. But with Nate, it's different. We met in Montana. We actually had the same internship while I was going to grad school. And we just struck a chord when we both found out we were extremely early sobriety. And Nate kept going. I was in my early, I think, a couple months of sobriety when I met Nate and I, I went two and a half years and congratulations to you, Nate, for sticking with that and almost hitting five years. And Nate, let's talk about your elevator moment. When did you decide it was time to stop drinking and, and get off? The time that I decided to, to stop drinking, I was 25 years old and it was right around that time, uh, you know, five years ago, in the spring where I, I hit a moment in life where I had said, and I had said enough times that Drinking was taking me down the wrong path, but it eventually hit a moment where I said, I need to quit now or else I'm not sure if I'm going to live. I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I had anxiety through the roof and I needed help. And so I, you know, fall back on my family and my loved ones and close ones. I knew that something was wrong. I don't know what it was, but I knew that I had hit the bottom and I needed to stop. You know, was that, was that a moment of clarity or, or was it through pain you had to realize that or kind of it, what happened? But it, it was, I wouldn't say it's a moment of clarity. It was a moment of fear. You know, I had just moved to a new city. I had graduated college not that long before. Um, I had moved to a new town. You know, as I, as, I, as I was leaving where I was before, I felt like I had abused alcohol and made some poor decisions and done some things where I kind of built myself a reputation I wasn't too proud of. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to move to a new city. I'm going to start fresh and start all over again. And that lasted for about a month where I had moved into a new place and I specifically picked the apartment I wanted to live in because it was walking distance from some, uh, from the bars. And within a month, I was in this tailspin that I, I had no idea really what was going on. And I had anxiety through the roof and I felt like I needed, I needed to go to a hospital. I needed some help. It was not clear at all. I needed to I was down on my hands and knees, you know, calling, calling my mom and dad saying, please come help me. I don't know what's going on. So I wouldn't call it a moment of clarity at that time. Sure. And, and it sounds like you did the old geographical cure, which is moving to another state, you know, a new location where you're going to live. You're going to be walking to the bars. And I'm guilty of this myself. And talk to me about how the problems didn't necessarily stay in the state that you moved from and they came with you. I guess that there's that thought or, or whatever it's uh I don't know where it comes from where you think that you can just run away from run away from a problem by moving somewhere else where no one knows you and you kind of get a fresh start and that would make sense if if I was going to look in the mirror and say well I need to make some changes myself you know I'm, I'm probably abusing alcohol five six days a week this time and you know screwing up stuff at work because um you know out too late drinking the night before or I'm making decisions, you know, that I wouldn't make sober and I'm having a lot of guilt or, you know, just feeling like I'm not being the person who I really am. You know, if, if I was going to make those decisions while moving to a new place, it might make a little more sense. Sure. But, but, but to continue to be the same person in a new place, it wasn't going to solve it. It was very temporary. It was maybe 
a couple of weeks before it caught up to me. In Recovery Elevator, usually my guests, including myself, are alcoholics. Now with Nate, giving that I know you personally, I don't think you're an alcoholic, and it doesn't matter. And again, the only person that can diagnose yourself as an alcoholic is yourself. But Nate made a decision almost five years ago to quit drinking. And Nate, you did something that no alcoholics can do. Actually, just very few of them. It's so difficult to do. You said you were on your hands and knees, and you called your parents, and you asked for help. And that is something that is so hard for so many alcoholics or just people in general to do. And tell me how that call basically changed your life and asking for help is so important. You know, I guess leading up to that moment, that wasn't just the moment where I was, you know, for the years before that, I was just happily drinking, having a great time and everything was all good. You know, there were there were hard moments, you know, and then another hard moment, another hard moment year after year where it finally hit this. I had said to myself, okay, I need to, I need to slow down. I need to drink less. But it took, it took a moment where I felt like I was going to die. I I thought that either my heart was going to explode because it was beating so fast in a panic attack, or I thought that I had lost control of my body where, you know, I didn't feel safe being in my fifth floor apartment because I, I was too close to a window. And so that feeling, I don't know if that's just something that's deep down inside a human being where if you sense like there's this instinct where you need to do something to survive and to call in home and saying, I need help with, with surviving. I couldn't be more thankful that I, you know, it was hard at the time. It was the hardest thing I ever went through my entire life. And the, the, week, the weeks and months and even year or two following that were, you know, had moments just as hard as well. Um, but I'm really thankful for it now for sure. And, and Nate, when you did go to grad school a couple of years after, after we met, you had an internship as a school counselor. And you basically said one day that if you eliminated alcohol from just from these people's families, that the majority of the kids in the room would not be there. Can you tell me just about, you know, being a parent in general, if, if you're sober, you'll be a much better parent? Well, you know, like you said, I, I spent... I spent you know, two years working in, working in schools with, uh, with kids and counselors, and I would hear oftentimes that kids that had issues going on, you know, at home or kids who had issues at school, uh, whether it was discipline issues or, you know, kids would come in and they would have bruises because they were abused at home or, you know, really anything you can imagine. It was unbelievable how much was going on in some kids' lives that were so close to me that I would have no idea. Uh, but now that in this role I'm hearing about and common denominator was often, you know, these kids would tell me where their parents were at home abusing alcohol or their family members were at home, you know, drunk. And this happened where, you know, kids getting neglected, kids getting hit or, or even worse. So that was something that struck me where I thought, you know what, I've been, I've been sober at this point for now two years or so. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I'm going to be such a better dad one day because my kid, my kids will never, uh, they'll never see me drunk. I'll never have a moment where I make a poor decision or do something wrong or completely act out of character because I'm under the influence of alcohol. And it was, it was a really common thing that I saw. And it was something that definitely motivated me to stay sober. When is that one day where you will be a sober father? Actually, you might have a date. Am I right? All right. This uh, this summer, actually, in uh, July seventh is the date that we have marked down. But I will uh, have my first uh, own son, 
uh, this summer. And so that's a, a really exciting thing. Definitely have thought about that. You know, here, here's something I've always thought about for a long time and, and now here it is. And, and, you know, I, I'm sure that, you know, my son will, will notice, he, he'll, you know, you'll see people, he'll see adults holding beverages and, it'll come across his mind one day, like, and my dad doesn't do that. And I look forward to having that conversation of why I don't do it and how big part of it is my motivation towards being a better a better father. Now, Nate, if there's one thing your son will be able to do, that will be kick an object, <laughs> be it a football or a soccer ball. Now, Nate was a Division One scholarship athlete, and he was a place kicker and and kicked for a pretty big school. He had a full ride scholarship. Tell me what that was like. And I know you were drinking at that time. And do you think you could have perhaps been had a, had a, had a more productive collegiate career? Or what was that like drinking and, and playing college football at such a high level? I, I guess starting before that, uh, with having aspirations of being an athlete at a young age, uh, that was something I connected with. I really didn't do that well in school. I was kind of a awkward, lanky, kind of late developer and lacked confidence in a lot of areas. And so I, I really connected with playing sports. You know, one thing I was good at was playing soccer, which later translated into to being a, a place kicker. And I, I remember at a young age thinking, you know, I'm, I'm not going to drink because I'm going to be a better athlete if I don't do it. And that was something I held on to as I was 15, 16 years old. And I would see my peers taking part in either doing drugs or drinking. And I would think to myself, I'm going to be a better athlete than my competitors because I'm not going to do that. You know, I think what eventually happened was I, I, you know, saw how much I eventually one time I'm like, well, you know what? I'm going to try this. I don't know. I was, I didn't have much confidence either talking to girls or I just didn't really feel, uh, you know, too much courage. And so I tried it one time and I saw like, Oh wow, now I get it. This is some great stuff. So I, you know, started drinking at some point in high school and all the girls I was afraid to talk to, and all these girls I couldn't imagine spending time with. All of a sudden, I got this courage to talk to them, and I feel my confidence is like through the roof. And so, uh, you know, I, I began drinking in high school and did that all the way through college quite a bit. You know, I don't know at, at this point, how, how, you know, how much better I could have been. I know there was plenty of times where I showed up to practice, and I had been drinking the entire night before. And I don't know how much better. I, I had a pretty good career as it was, but you know, I, I guess that's something I'll never know is, is could I have made even more of it if I would have same discipline or, you know, had better control of, you know, drinking when I shouldn't have been. And I have only known Nate, the sober Nate. And I remember we had a couple conversations in a parking lot and you told me your grade point average after high school or, and you had to go to a, a, another academy after high school. And I was blown away because Nate, you are a very intelligent person and you killed it in grad school academically, but the drinking Nate, I mean, it makes sense why you're not drinking just wasn't getting it done. And it doesn't matter if you're an alcoholic or not of that sense. You made a decision to quit five years ago and it's working out really well for you, but let's back it up five years, almost five years ago what was it like when you first quit what was that first week like the first day uh, month tell me about it i mean it's it's a time a place in my life that i am so thankful that it is in the past and that i don't have to relive that right now and a great motivation to to not drink again to have to do, go through it again it was you know the, the, that first couple of days was just inner turmoil chaos in my own head of what is what is going on I, do i need to go to a 
I think I need to go to a hospital. I think I need to be medicated and I need to be, you know, I need a shot of something that's going to calm me down. I I don't know. I couldn't sleep. I, every time I try to turn my brain off, it would just, it would get worse of these terrible anxious feelings of feeling like something was wrong with me and my life was over. It, It felt like the time just would pass so slow and I would do anything I could to distract myself and, you know, I'd go to work and it was hard to concentrate. I'd have to go home from work, you know, at times or it, it was, it was something that, um, you know, someone in, in the early stage of recovery who is going through that, like my heart goes out to you, but I would say, stay strong, you know, find a way, find things that you can latch onto and enjoy doing to get through that because it does get better. But that first day, two days, week, month, six months, uh, is not something that that you know, I'd ever want to experience again. And in early recovery, let's talk about some cool things that you have done and another experience that we both have done. One good thing about going to grad school is you get a spring break. Nate and I had a spring break in 2011, and we basically put a map of Central America on the wall and started throwing darts, and we landed on El Salvador. Do you remember that? I do. Yeah, and yeah, tell me about your experience in El Salvador because I was terrified, Nate, and I I definitely hid my 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 you know being timid because I'd lived in Spain and I spoke Spanish. And I'm like Nate, no big deal, man. This is gonna be a breeze. But in back in my head, I was like El Salvador. Like they just had a civil war in the '90s. There was all these State Department regulations, but we went and we got outside of our comfort zone and just talk a little bit about this amazing sober trip that we both had. Right. I mean, you know, maybe looking back, we shouldn't have done that. Um, no, that was that was an incredible experience, and it was something that I was nervous to do before we did it. Because exactly like you said, Paul, we threw a, threw a dart at a map, and it landed on El Salvador, and and we packed our bags and we went down there. You know, I think the thought of like going on spring break and somewhere with like a nice nice weather, and you know, like we're gonna have a party and have a great time, and and you know, but we we were both going down there under a year sober and kind of unsure of what the hell we were doing or what was going to happen or if, if you know, we'd have a good time. And I'm worried that my anxiety is going to go through the roof when I'm here in a place where I don't know how safe it's going to be and I don't have any type of escape to let my mind be at ease, which is maybe something I would do to, you know, have a drink before. And, you know, looking back, nine or ten day kind of backpacking trip through first, kind of the central part of El Salvador through uh, volcanoes and, you know, some cool little towns and then ended up on the coast in a little surf town. I mean, from the different hikes and stuff that we went on and the people that we met and every single moment of it was sober. I have a vivid memory of everything that we did and everything that happened. I was never one uh, drunk, like on a vacation I maybe had envisioned in, in college, a spring break out ahead before. And of all the traveling I've done and, and looking back on, on that now, it's like that was the, one of the best times of my life I've ever had. You know, that we just picked up and we were spontaneous and we went and did that. And you know, I thought that I needed alcohol to be like spontaneous and fun. And that, that trip trumps any, any other, uh, you know, travel experience I had where I thought that, you know, hey, I'm up for whatever. Let's just get drunk and see what happens. This is way better than that. You know, it, it, was, it was amazing. And there were... There were moments too where, you know, we're walking down the street and we're talking to the, to the local police and, you know, we're like, oh shit, what's going to happen here? 
And, uh, but, you know, we were smart and we, you know, kept our head on our shoulders and we weren't drunk and put ourselves in a bad spot. And I think looking back, that's probably a, you know, a really good thing. Yeah, Nate, and you said recollection. You remember the trip. We had long bus rides together early in the morning. And I remember the conversations like it was yesterday and, and we weren't hung over. We were on a college spring break on the beach you know, in a different country, and we weren't shit-faced, and we weren't throwing up the next morning or the night of, and we had a blast. And you even had a, a rifle pulled on you in sobriety, am I right? <laughs> yeah, the, the, story, the story sounds like something really intense happened, but we're here staying at a, uh, a hostel in El Salvador, and, you know, it's some guy's house, a hostel in El Salvador. It's just some guy's house and has an extra room. And, you know, at one point in the middle of the night, I heard this guy had some cookies downstairs in his kitchen. And I guess Paul went down there and took a few without asking. And so I thought, well, I'm going to try the same thing. And so I'm in this guy's kitchen eating cookies and in my underwear. And he comes down with a rifle and, and points it at me thinking of someone in the neighborhood had broke in. So I got my hands up like, please don't shoot. So, you mean, when you think about it, like, hey, I was in El Salvador with a rifle pulled on me, like, something might have really bad happened. I was just in some dude's kitchen eating cookies in my underwear. Yeah, as you say, uh, you you said it real quick, but you were in your underwear. That's probably the best part about it. Right. Yeah, and I was in bed, probably had cookie crumbs on me because I I had a problem back then and and actually still have it. I, I nighttime eat a lot. And Nate, we have reached the lightning round where you just give us quick 20 to 30 second answers to the following questions. Nate, what was holding you back from quitting drinking? Uh, what was holding me back was drinking is fun. It's exciting. Uh, you get to be this amazing person, or at least you feel like it. And man, going out to the bars and staying out late and chasing after girls was so much fun and exciting and it had terrible consequences too, but they I was still seeking something out there. I don't know what I was seeking, but I felt like I needed to keep drinking to keep getting that fun and excitement. And that was what held me back for probably a couple of years before I should have stopped. When did the light bulb go off and you finally had the courage to quit drinking? That light bulb, I guess, went off when when I had, had this moment where, like I said before, I felt like I was going to die. And you know, if that doesn't, you know, exactly what happened at that time was, you know, here I am, you know, drinking, making poor decisions. Uh, and when I say making poor decisions, I mean, I'm not respecting myself. I'm not respecting other people. And that's something that I think, you know, is, is who I was raised to be or, you know, my Catholic upbringing. Um, it's, it's something that, you know, is in, in me of who I am. You know, I think I had too many mornings where I woke up in the morning and I said, dear God, please help me. I'm, I'm sorry I did this. I won't do this again. Forgive me. I'm going to get better. And, uh, Maybe after a dozen times of having that same plea with God, it just hit a time where I had had enough and I felt like I was going to die. What is your favorite resource in recovery? There's a couple of uh, good books I found, but I really think that my favorite resource or best resource is depending on connecting with uh, people you know, that I can relate to in a similar situation. Like pick up the phone and call you. You know, it's been like, you know, we had a lot of talks a long a while ago about different things that we'd struggle with and, and I think finding someone that you can relate to and is under the same experience like man like all right like you know I'm not doing this alone uh there's other people like me I've been to you know a handful of AA meetings in those moments too and I, I think those are great great resources really and, and, and you know what when you don't have that something that I found is uh 
just going outside for a walk on enjoying things in life that maybe you didn't think about before, you know, a sunny day or, you know, nice weather or just walking down the sidewalk and, and seeing things you hadn't seen before, taking your mind away from it and, and maybe appreciating things that I never appreciated before. And I didn't, I didn't really care about it. You know, that's, that's something that sounds so simple, but it's been so helpful. And Nate, what's the best advice you've ever received? I was at a, uh, a football coach's clinic. And I heard a football coach say he was talking about what, what he, the way he coaches his team. And he said something that he says to his team is something that his dad used to tell him before he would go out at night when he was in high school. And he said before he'd go out at night, his dad would say to him, remember who you are. And when he said that, he said that, that that's something that he says to his team. Hey, remember who we are. And he said his dad would say that to him as a teenager. You know, when you go out and you're going to go and make decisions or do whatever it is you're going to do tonight, just remember who you are. Remember who you are and who we raised you to be. And that was something that hit me as like, you know what? When I'm drunk, I do not remember who I am. I am not the person who, you know, I'm not the person who my parents raised me to be or who I want to be. And when I'm sober, I can, I can be that person. I can be who I am. And so when, I, when that guy said that, remember who you are, that was something that stuck with me as something I I think about. And Nate, what parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are in early recovery or are thinking about quitting drinking? Parting piece of guidance, I guess I'd say, is I I think there's so much strength in finding others that you can depend on. You know, whether they're loved ones, your family, friends, uh, people that you might meet in that are are also, you know, in a similar situation or who are sober, to, to depend on those people, to talk to those people, be open. But in the end, in the end, you can get support and you can find, you know, you can depend on others. But in the end, it, it, it's 100% on you. It's a decision that you need to make for yourself. You need to become accountable and look yourself in the eye and say, this is what I need to do. And if you are an alcoholic and you need to stop drinking to, to you know, live your life, you know, I hope that you can find the courage to do that interventions, family support, rehab facilities, but in the end, it it is all you. Right. Well said. Great stuff. And I am going to put a photo of you and I from El Salvador. I haven't figured out which one yet. I'm going to put that photo up. And as soon as your son is born, let's get a photo of him up as well. And listeners, you can go to recoveryelevator.com and just put El Salvador in the search bar and it will come up. This episode will come up and you can check Nate and I out in El Salvador. I think we're going to find the one of us hitchhiking in El Salvador. Yeah. And see an awesome sober trip that we took in sobriety. Nate, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Recovery Elevator, this will be quick, but you might be an alcoholic if, after hearing that a Peruvian witch doctor can cure your alcoholism, you personally want to go make an appointment with that Peruvian witch doctor to see if you can again return to be a normal drinker, you're probably an alcoholic. Yeah, that was me. So the duration of this trip, like I said, I'm recording this podcast in Caranzinho, Brazil. I had rented a car to go visit my good friend Marcos, and I thought I would be weaving in and out of the jungle, dodging monkeys and anacondas. Not the case. I think I might be in Nebraska, actually, in farmland. But anyways, it's great to see my buddy Marcos. Tomorrow, I fly to Argentina for two days, and then back to Las Vegas for a podcast convention. Well, hopefully, I'll really learn how to podcast and get this thing done the right way. Again, Vegas round two this year, It's going to be sober. I'm taking this one day at a time, but I'm going to go to the podcast convention, back to my hotel room, record episode nine in my hotel room, 
And most importantly, be sober at this podcast convention in Las Vegas because nothing cool happens when I'm drinking. I can't do anything to help anybody else while drinking and not being sober. In fact, podcast episode nine will be about taking action within your own four walls of the house. What I mean is what you need to do to get yourself in the best shape possible to stay sober and maintain a healthy recovery. Recovery elevator, you took the elevator down, you got to take the steps back up, you can do this.